So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Man fans, Ollie Man here. Hope you're keeping safe and well. Here's what we have for you today. We were looking forward to a really busy season and then COVID happened. When lockdown pivots your business plan. What happened when a backpacker's hostel housed a hundred homeless people? Plus... So we have a listener who wants a post-fuck cough to fuck off. Alex Fox eliminates after sex reflexes and Ollie Peart sets fire to the rain. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters and hello to Rowan Thomas, a female Rowan, she says. Doe, a dear, a female Rowan. Uh, she writes to us, she says, from the countryside between Lancaster and the Lake District... I'm going to pinpoint you at Carnforth, Rowan. I don't know if you're from Carnforth. It's where they shot Brief Encounter, so it feels romantic to me. Uh, Anyway, Rowan says, Ollie, thank you. I only discovered The Modern Man in December, but I've now listened to every episode. What a wonderful podcast. It makes me feel such a range of emotions and learn about new things, particularly in the foxhole. I love it when I finish an episode, having laughed, but also knowing I've increased my compassion for someone else's situation. Uh, Rowan, thank you. You have uh, beautifully outlined the formula of our magazine show there, (laughs) but also given me pretty much the perfect feedback that I love to hear. I'm not sure I would recommend listening to all our back catalogue in one month, to be honest. That is 6,161 minutes, uh, which, uh, back of a packet calculation now, is 102 hours. So across the 31 days of December, Rowan, you listen to just shy of three and a half hours a day of this podcast. That is too much. Uh, Anyway, uh, Rowan continues. It is also incredible listening back to old episodes, given that so many of Ollie Peart's predictions really did become big trends. Did they? It's like a parallel universe (laughs) that I haven't stepped into, which that's the case. Uh, At the time, Ollie, you claimed he wasn't correct with many of them, but he definitely was. I mean, look, I think my job in the Zeitgeist Rowan is always to sound a note of scepticism, you know, further the debate. But I will, grudgingly, give him veganism and Fortnite. But if I was ever to let on to him that he was right about those, then he wouldn't ever back down on his other predictions. That's the issue. He would not rest until we all had Oculus Rift. Thank you as well to everybody who has been donating to the show already this year, uh, and particularly throughout 2020. What a hell shit of a year. Uh, despite which, you man fans contributed 30% more beer money year on year to this podcast. Uh, That is so massively appreciated by all of us because we really cannot make this show just depending on 
advertising revenue. We're a truly independent podcast, so it is you keeping us on the road. Uh, recent new donors, here comes the roll call of honour, include Rob from Pickering, James from Guam, Edgar from Barcelona, Brent in Omaha, Nadezhda from Canada, and Wen Fu, who was incredibly generous and sent us £50. So thank you. You don't have to send us 50 quid. All we're asking for is the price of a pint of beer, about five US dollars. And you can do it per month, one off, twice yearly, whatever you like. Find the secure form via our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And you can support us via PayPal there as well if you want. Uh, Right, the uh, Modern Man Year begins. On today's episode, you will learn what a dripstick is, you'll learn what whiskey breathing is, and you'll learn how much a 100% nylon 1997 Berghaus all-in-one ski suit costs on eBay. Let's go. Time for the zeitgeist with the man who has spent 35 years testing trends, Ollie Pitt. Uh, happy birthday, Ollie. 35 the other day. 35 years in the business. What's what's the trend that you really feel you've been ahead of? Yo-yos? No. Mario DS? No, none of that. Power Rangers? No. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You saw that one coming, did you? S- saw that one coming. And also... You were like, into their early work? Well, I knew that they were going to be massively popular. Like I was hugely into them. <laughs> Shut up, Ollie. Why are you laughing? Was... I was like, these guys have got something special. <laughs> I just knew it. And I asked my dad one Christmas for the Turtles sewer playset. Was there one? Yeah. And he laughed at me and he said, he goes, <laughs> you want a sewer for Christmas? And that has stuck and with me my whole life. At least he didn't life. say go and play in the sewer. <laughs> Well, that's probably what he wanted Which me to do. Which is what I thought was coming. Uh, eagle-eared listeners will note that um, I am not sitting in uh, Ollie's garden, as we had promised last month. Um, because even though technically we, we could still travel to Dorchester for work, this is work, the optics were bad when many of you listening weren't able to see your own families this Christmas. Yeah, it's not just that either, but I was going to take you guys to the beach and trying to justify to passers-by that what we were doing was work... it's just you know cooking over a barbecue having a jolly we'd be all over twitter probably the best marketing we could do (laughs) yeah but anyway ollie mentions barbecues because the challenge for this month was from josh in gants hill who'd asked you to suggest the perfect winter barbecue for six people now obviously josh can't actually have any guests now but anyway uh the trend for winter barbecues i presume is still a thing is it a thing well I mean, winter barbecuing has always been a sort of thing, but barbecuing over 2020, especially during lockdown, went crazy because people were at home and they were really bored and they wanted something to do. So searches for barbecue on Google hit a five-year high and people have been looking for more slightly unusual things to do. So within that search, people have been looking for barbecued jackfruit, but also uh, something I'd never heard of before, Kamado. Have you heard of Kamado? No, isn't that that joke in Friends about not wearing any pants? Kamado isn't like a food. It's actually a type of barbecue. It's a ceramic barbecue. And you know, like, oh, right. you might have, you might, you've probably seen one actually and not really realised, but you, have you seen those ones that look like big green eggs? There's a branded thing called Big Green Egg, isn't there? Who make Kamado barbecues. Right, okay. Yeah, no, I have seen those. They're effectively like slow-cooked barbecues, aren't they? So you like leave a joint of meat on there for like 12 hours is the idea, isn't it? And it slowly smokes it. Yeah. So those I can imagine being better for winter because there's less contact with 
flame and wind going on. Like you light it and then you close it, don't you? And you leave it. Yeah, but it depends what you want to do because they're really fucking heavy and they're really mm. expensive as well. So when we were in the tier system, there was a time where you couldn't go in gardens, but you could meet people in public spaces. These big green eggs, forget meeting people in public spaces with a big green egg. <laughs> you're, you're going to need a, a forklift to get the thing in there. You can yes. just forget it. <laughs> and what nation does it come from? It sounds vaguely Southern American. Oh, you're way off. It's Japanese. Oh, really? I mean, each each country's got their own sort of like word for barbecuing. So in South South uh, Africa, it's a bray, they call it a bray. Mm-hmm. And in South America, uh, parts of South America, it's an asado. It's basically cooking over uh, open wood flame. So it's not, you know, there's not necessarily a, a, a physical sort of thing that you need. It's just cooking over an open flame. Whereas with a kamado the Japanese side of thing, it actually means sort of a cauldron. It's like a cauldron over a fire. So there's like a physical thing that you need for that to work. And it is specifically ceramic with the Kamado, mm. which is why they're so heavy and why they're so expensive. I am interested to hear that like searches for Japanese barbecues are up 400% or whatever it is. But I often do hear that. And I think, well, that's because they started from a really low base. And actually... The real statistic might be that sales of own brand barbecues from home base are up 900%. That's what's really happening. But just a side effect of it is this niche industry has just got slightly larger. Do you know what I mean? Like the real story might be people still barbecuing in the traditional way. Yeah, but what's interesting, so I spoke, I've been speaking to Weber. Now, have you heard of Weber? I've got a Weber. in my. I've got two, actually. I had a charcoal what? Weber barbecue, big fan. Uh, yeah. And then actually for this reason, sort of non-seasonal barbecuing, I went gas. So I got a right. Weber gas barbecue, uh, which makes you feel like you're still using a Weber because it's got a silhouette of a charcoal barbecue on it. <laughs> but it's basically <laughs> an oven that goes in your garden. <laughs> that, I've never done it in winter, though, but for autumn and spring barbecuing for the lockdown, indeed. Yeah, got myself a Weber gas barbecue. Well, they've been saying, actually, they've said what they actually are seeing is people buying more of the accessories and what they've called upskilling their barbecue stuff. Because people have more time, so they're not just cooking sausages and burgers. They're going, right. I'm going to do a roast on here. And they, they're they trying more things and they're using the biggest uh, increase in sales that they've seen is in their smart grill technology, which is, I saw your I'm groaning. Just the, but yeah. yeah well, on. because again, because like, of course they've seen an increase in that because no one was interested. Now some people are interested. Do you know what I mean? Like, of course, some people are interested in, what is it, like a thermometer that tells you when the meat's done. Most people would still rather just look at it, wouldn't they? And not spend £100 on that. Well, yes, it does tell you when the meat is ready, but you can sort of just say, uh, I want it rare, I want it medium rare. And you just tap and then it just tells you and sends you a notification because the type of cooking that they do is this covered type of cooking. So you can't mm. always look at the meat that you're preparing. But what it will do is it will notify you when your meat is ready. So you don't have to really worry about it. You can kind of stick it in, sit down, have a beer, and it will go boop, boop and then you know it's done. But I also spoke to uh, a guy that lives locally to me, actually, a guy called Tom Bray, and he uh, runs a company called Country Fire Kitchen, and he specialises in asado barbecue, the South American barbecue, which you now know. Mm -hmm. And when I was speaking to him, he was like, look, the great thing about barbecuing is you don't need anything to get started. You don't need anything. Just a hole in the ground and some wood. So... Okay. This I would like to see you do. You laugh, but we're talking about winter barbecuing here. You don't want to sit around a massive yeah. fire in summer, necessarily. But in the winter, great. It's going to keep you warm. It's going to be nice. No, definitely. I, because I've got one of those things that they call chimneys. You know, the like... Um, Chimney. Chim- yeah, thank you. Beautifully said. 
like yeah one of those one of those things that Jamie Oliver cooks a pizza on except it's smaller than that and it doesn't light however much I try but it looks kind of rustic so I've kept it in the garden he means chimney yeah got one of them and because I can't ever get it to light I've actually ended up sometimes opening my barbecue to get the heat off that to keep myself warm I mean presume that's where the style of cooking came from anyway was around a campfire right also because that's how we used to cook like yeah like <laughs> Light a fire. The interesting yes. thing that, oh, the bit that I'm, I say, looking forward to that I want to try. I mean, he's Tom is very rustic in that, as you know, I don't eat meat. And uh, one of the suggestions Tom had was to cook a steak, but uh, a really thick steak. He said two mm. inches. I didn't even know you could get a two inch thick steak. But anyway, he says you get more control over the. I mean, you've seen a cow. You know they're thicker than two inches. Yeah, but I've never seen a two-inch steak. Not divided down the middle. Have you ever had a two-inch steak, Ollie? I understand the point you're making, but I also have the imagination to conceive that a two-inch steak is possible. But his, he, he was saying if you get the bigger the steak, the more control you get over how it cooks and that kind of thing. And when I said, yeah. well, how would you cook it? He said, oh, no, you just chuck it straight on the logs. I was like, what? Mm. So what you do, you burn all the embers down, uh, get a bit of the ash off, you just chuck it straight on. See, that sounds to me like a process that would take all day like you'd start that at sunset and it would be ready that evening not a steak surely steak would... no no the, the burning the logs until the embers bit well i've got a wood burning stove in my house and yeah. uh that burns down to embers pretty quickly so i can't imagine it would take all that long okay so steak isn't on the menu what are you gonna cook us virtually on the asado i'm gonna make this is tom's recommendation i'm gonna make salmon nailed to cedar wood because wood chips are so entry level uh you get a side of salmon some nails and crucify it <laughs> and you crucify it uh and it, it like it looks like something out of a of a horror film and then you sort of you lean it up just sort of next to the fire oh my god and it sort of cooks that way and sort of smokes up through the uh, through the fish i mean actually that sounds amazing Visually, but actually the smell of slowly cooking fish isn't that pleasant, is it? I mean, again, I'm outside and there's smoke everywhere. Yeah, yeah no, I'm saying it's good if you're outside. I, I wouldn't want inside a crucified piece of salmon on the side of my stove being steamed slowly away and filling the house with that smell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely lends itself to, to outside cooking, that's for sure. So so I'm going to do that. I have, no, I have no idea how long it takes. Now, the thing is, I haven't got any cedar wood. Oh, the shame. I'm going to use plywood instead. <laughs> Un- or, or, uh, well, I say plywood. I've, I've got I've got some untreated ply. <laughs> Please tell me it's not like old skirting board. So long as yeah. it's untreated, that's the point. Now, there is a idea that you get some flavour from the cedar. A rotten old bath frame. <laughs> the smell of salmon slowly filling the air. Yeah, it's kind of less of an asado kind of barbecue, more of a redneck hillbilly. <laughs> yeah. Might as well cook on a car tire. But the, then I said, well, what would I, what would I cook with it? What can go with it? And he was super keen on me doing celeriac. Oh, now you've won my heart. Okay, go on. Big fan here. Are Big you? fan of barbecued celeriac. I've done it. It's great. Heart of celeriac. Yeah. You want it burnt, though. You want to, like, cook it on a flame. Hey, yeah, so that's exactly what he said. He said you need, it, basically, you've got to black it right up so it looks completely yeah. burnt. And then soft in the middle, I presume. Not really, like... Oh, no, he did say that. He was quite specific about that. He said it's got to be soft in the middle. He was like, you don't want it don't want it too hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's preferable. But I suppose the advantage of that kind of root vegetable, I think, is that if you do burn it, you get crisps. 
So it's not like like if you burn a sausage, you get something that's going to break your mouth. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you burn a vegetable, it's still edible. Have you chucked it on whole then? I've sort of sliced it into sort of steak size, layer like a tuna steak. Ah, uh, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, he's like chuck it on whole because you're not grilling well, it. Okay. You're just chucking it straight on, straight onto the fire. No. Well, actually, well, well, hold on. When you say straight on the fire, yeah. Is then there's no protective metal mesh between the flame and the thing? No, straight on the embers, basically. No, so don't think of flame... On the wood? Yeah, on the wood, yeah, yeah. So it's basically when the fire's died down, that's when you start cooking? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so you cook it... The, the embers okay. are still... They're, they're, like, glowing. They're still, like, white hot, you know? They're very hot. Yes, yeah. So I'm going to just chuck it on there and then turn it every once in a while to see what happens. That's amazing. Like, I can't imagine actually doing that on a weekly basis in the summer, but I think as a one-off to, to have a rustic winter barbecue and you've got nothing else going on, great. Well, why that's not? the thing, isn't it? it that, that's why it's so wintry. We're talking about a root vegetable sat around a fire for many, yeah. many hours. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You would not do that in the summer. Uh, anything else? Yeah. Speaking to Weber, they've said they've seen a lot of people that are getting in touch with them that are doing desserts on their barbecue. Really? Yes. I, what, do, what can you do? Like banana? I mean, you could do banana. What they've suggested to me is sweet pizza. Oh, okay. I'm listening. Sorry. I'm trying to control my reaction. It's a pizza with a sweet topping. And I'm going to make a uh, chocolate and banana. <laughs> Knew it. Sweet, <laughs> sweet pizza. So you're going to use the Modern Man Sourdough Starter that you created for us in the summer? I'm going to use the Modern Man Sourdough Starter, mm-hmm. but I'm going to just do it quite slowly over the gas barbecue. That's how it's going to work. Okay. You really, you're not into that. Not as much as the celeriac. You just, you would eat it. Ollie, if you were here and I made that sweet pizza, you would be munching on it like a pig. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you have correctly identified in me that I am more interested in savoury foods. I actually, I am indifferent to puddings and I have to pretend to be mm. excited when they come out. Thanks to the magic of podcasting, it is now four hours that have passed since the first part of our conversation that you've heard. Uh, and Ollie, you've taken our Zoom conversation into the great outdoors. Mm-hmm. So we can witness your barbecue upskilling. Uh, I must first ask you, though, why are you dressed like Jimmy Savile? Uh, you can hear this. This is a 1997 Berghouse all-in-one ski suit made of 100% nylon uh, that I got on eBay for £30. And I got it because this is like the ultimate thing to keep warm when you're sat outside for a long time that's good value for money. Plus side as well, this one came with a leaflet left over from someone's holiday in Vermont from whenever it was, <laughs> like 98. Well, I appreciate the effort. It does look yeah, cold sure. there. So uh, as I say, it's been four hours. Mm. Why? I've got a wood-burning stove in my house and that burns down to embers pretty quickly, you said. Yes. Uh, w- was I right that it actually takes ages? <laughs> it, it, you, were, you were 100% right, yeah. I mean, it took okay. twice as long as I was expecting for it to get to the point where I could start cooking. And the cooking itself taken quite a lot longer okay so let me see i want to see your hole show me your hole here it is is that in a plant bed it is in fact my lawn um so i've sacrificed a chunk of my lawn for the podcast you're welcome yeah because that's not going to grow back for months but yeah it's it's basically i've i've dug up some turf because you don't want to do it straight on turf i've lit i've just put some logs in the middle so were there any issues with setting fire to the ground because the wind obviously i mean it's a bit sheltered but was it trying to put itself out no we're quite lucky today actually there's not much wind around so i stacked up the logs i used some natural fire lighters a massive box of them i got a box of 200 of them were you at any point worried 
with your 200 firelighters and a flammable suit <laughs> that this could be a stunt going horribly wrong very quickly as the wind picked up. No, I was very careful. Okay, let's talk through the root vegetables first. Well, do you want to see them? Yes, please. Here we go, hang on. That's not a celeriac. A slight error on my part. I'd also ordered a turnip and a swede as a backup, as Tom said, they're quite good. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, no celeriac arrived. Still paid for it. I need to write to Tesco now and ask them where it is. Um, So I've only got a turnip and a swede, but apparently they're going to be quite good. Okay, so you just chucked a whole turnip on the flame until it was black, like a black bomber cheese. Yeah, they've been on for over an hour now. I don't actually know which one this is. It could be the Swede. I don't know. Um, so I'm going to cut it open anyway and have a look and see what it's like inside. Here we go. Okay. It, it feels quite soft. Oh, okay. That, oh! I think, I think that that's a Swede. Good. That looks all right inside. I was not expecting that. I thought it'd be black. No, that it, and that is properly smoking as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's Ooh, on, look at I, that. You wouldn't say on fire, but it's definitely... It's like creating a stage effect, like a Top of the Pops 1980s style dry ice effect. That is. That is very, very sweet. Very sweet, in fact. It's almost like it's sort of caramelised a bit. It's lovely. I'd eat that. It looks good. And you are actually... Because you've burnt the skin so horrifically on the outside, it yeah. almost has become like a hardened bowl. Like, you could almost, like, serving yourself a coconut. You could, if once that's cooled down, you don't need any plates, do you? You could eat out straight out of the half-sweet. That's actually genius. I've never done this before. That is brilliant. Okay, so we're going to call that an hors d'oeuvre. Um, let's try the salmon. Okay. He's sharpening um, his knife. Look at these skills. He I'm has not, no, skill. no, no, I'm getting ash off the knife because I'm going to the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to cut the fish. Here we go. Here's the fish. I can see salt crystals on top. I can see a pleasingly black burned skin i can see nails that look like you've been to wilco's though that's probably not the authentic look that, that, that tom wanted but i mean it's fine you know it it did the job I, one of the things i was worried about by nailing it on the board is when you tip it up because you know you're hanging it vertically i thought it would yeah. just like rip and fall off but it doesn't yes. it stays there perfectly so that's really good this has been on for about an hour and 20 minutes but i can already see so like i started cooking at the thick bit yes but like halfway up that bit's not quite done and I have sacrificed a perfectly good chopping board for you as well because I didn't have any untreated. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that plywood. Well, that plywood that I was going to use was was treated, so um, I didn't really want to eat from some tantalised bit Fine. of timber. So anyway, bit of caramelisation, lovely taste in the salt, not too smoky, not too smoky, but a real subtle smoky flavour. Do you want a subtle smoky flavour, though, really, once you've gone to all that effort? You know, you've got yourself a piece of wood. You spent hours nailing it in, standing it up, standing in the garden. Do you want it to be subtle or do you want everyone to know that you've been smoking? Well, no, but I mean, smoke's quite an intense flavour, isn't it? You, you don't want it to overpower the, the flavour of the fish, surely. That, I mean, that is delicious. I mean, that okay. is absolutely delicious. And you've done literally nothing to it, just salt and smoke, that's it? Nailed it to some wood, stuck it by a fire for an hour. Ollie, this is... This is Matt. You are missing out. Oh, I'm so yeah, sorry. You are making here. me a bit hungry. It does look good. Oh God, that is amazing. So I feel a bit bad now, tearing you away from obviously your delicious mains. Um, mm-hmm. You can return to that. I mean, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. After you've tested your child's crepe, done up in a hipster style. Right here we go. Oh. How long was that on the barbecue for? It's been on for about half an hour, maybe a bit longer, but. For the first sort of 15 minutes, it was on a pizza stone, which I put directly on the embers. Uh, that shattered. 
within 15 minutes. So that's oh, really? <laughs> God, sorry. You can put that on expenses. I will. I will. Uh, so I've had to put it in a, on, a, on a metal pan, which I've put on top of the fire. And um, it seems pretty done. It's slightly underdone on the top. So this is probably something that's not worth cooking asado style. If you've got a gas or charcoal barbecue in your garden, you're better off using that, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. I think you get more control over it. I think it's so hot. I know you're supposed to cook pizzas that are really hot, but I mean, it has literally just burnt the bottom of this pizza. Yeah, the bottom is black like the Swede. But it still looks delicious and it smells amazing. Oh, that sounds good. Okay, the bottom is disgusting. (laughs) But the top... Oh. Oh. That is amazing. Is it? I mean, Mm -hmm. is it the melted chocolate that's amazing rather than the barbecue pizza? Like, if you just melted some chocolate in a pan inside in five minutes, would that not be the same? If you take away the very, very charred bottom part of the pizza with the dough, the chocolate and the banana, it is absolutely brilliant. Okay, time to uh, put your challenge for next month. Are you ready? If it's as good as this, yeah, I'm ready. I did have to plunder the emails to find... Another thing you can do without leaving your house. <laughs> We're back in that <laughs> wheel again. Um, but I did find one. It's from Andrea in Manchester, mm-hmm. uh, who says, It is almost spring cleaning season, uh, but in truth, I've been cleaning my house every other day since lockdown one, and I am very bored of it. Uh, so I would like to task Ollie with finding the easiest, trendiest ways to clean my house. Uh, anything to make cleaning easier. That's a brilliant challenge. I hate cleaning. The passion. Great. Well, I'm glad that we're going to make you spend a month cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not. You're going to you're going to give me a month to figure out how I can make it easier for myself. That's brilliant. Like I, the worst thing about cleaning is getting your Hoover under the stairs. The mind obviously leaps to robot vacuum cleaners, and I guess that will be part of it. Of course, you're going to look into the latest ones of those. But it would be interesting to find something less well known, more novel, perhaps something eco friendly that we haven't thought about before. New ways of cleaning. Can it include a cleaner? What, you mean a human being you pay to come and clean your house? Yeah, I just quite like the idea of putting that on expenses. Um, I mean, legally it can at the moment, but since we don't know where we're going to be by mid-February, I think it's probably best it doesn't. I think we should uh, thank our sponsors as well for buying me a new pizza stone. <laughs> yeah, I'll add that to the invoice. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. support for the Zeitgeist comes from Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Ollie, remind us of the incredible technology that powers the Lawnmower 3.0, king of all ball trimmers. Still my favourite thing. I've been using it quite a lot, the LED light that's on it, right? Because yeah. it's so dark down there. It's like the depths of hell. But with this, <laughs> it assists in the shaving in a way I never thought would be helpful. It's brilliant. I love it. It is the waterproof, torch-enabled, USB, anti-chafing ball trimmer that you need in your life. Or, mm-hmm. or the man you know needs in your life, if you're not a man. Uh, you can use it in the shower as well. Yeah, that's a stroke of genius. And I mean, just generally speaking, it's a good idea, I think, to have a separate trimmer for your balls than the one you use on your face. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. That is the international site, so you need to choose the country that you're in from the drop-down menu at the top, and our code works whether you are in the UK, the USA, Canada, or Australia. So, 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code M-A-N-N. Um, Ollie, you're in your garden with your terraced house neighbours within earshot so it amuses me to make you shout out the slogan can you say your balls will thank you your balls will thank you that wasn't that loud i'm i'm so i'm so no no that's so louder what why (laughs) hang on hang on let me just look around (laughs) this is so embarrassing why are you making me do this your balls will thank you
<laughs> Perfect. Uh, right, up so next you will meet so man loud. fan Andrew, whose uh, rather glamorous business enterprise was turned upside down thanks to the pandemic. Uh, but first it is time for our record of the month. It is from Dutch singer-songwriter Isla, uh, who's previously written for Little Mix and Bastille. Her latest single is Doing It Again. It's out now and it's on our playlist at modernman.co.uk slash music. You're doing it again You're looking at me in a way that seems we're more than just friends Tell me it's okay, don't be afraid I'm not doing anything with that Cheeky grin on your face mm. You're doing it again Claim it's an accident When you pass the run your fingers through my hand for a second, I know what you're thinking Cause I'm thinking the same oh. I'm doing it too. Now, at the time we are recording this Britain is back in national lockdown Most of us are working from home Homeschooling And desperately trying to reflect on the lessons That we learned during the first Covid lockdown Last year an Englishman who lives in France, uh, a man fan we're calling Andrew, had an experience during that lockdown, or confinement they call it in France, which transformed his business. He and his family run a youth hostel in Nice, right in the middle of the old town, near the beach, with 45 bedrooms. And having established their business at the turn of the century, they've seen it evolve alongside digital culture. It felt like a kind of new frontier. It was really the beginning of the internet. The traditional hospitality route was really either you grew up with it or maybe you went to hotel school. And with the internet, suddenly a whole uh, new possibilities to go to market properties and, and uh, to start hospitality businesses took off. Uh, we had a really simple marketing formula, which was that we sold uh, pints for one euro. <laughs> we had an absolutely raging bar. The original property was a nunnery. We had these absolutely beautiful gardens all around and a big chapel. We turned the, the nunnery's uh, chapel into a bar. It was a place for people to meet. I don't think they cared at all about the, the beds or the mattresses or or any of the rest of it. I think that has changed over time. I think people now expect basically what you'd expect in a hotel. And we, we have private rooms Design really matters, especially with Instagram. And I would say now we're much closer to traditional uh, hotels. So a youth hostel in a shishi area in the south of France, what's your typical customer? So our typical customer would be an Australian travelling around with Contiki, bus about some of the bigger companies on doing a tour of Europe, arriving with us uh, for a fun couple of days, exploring Nice, probably kicking off with a a few drinks at the bar, and uh, then moving on to a pub crawl. Uh, we do lots of outdoor activities, diving and canyoning and sailing, and uh, just really exploring as much as possible of the French Riviera. You know, beautiful restaurants, beautiful beach bars, uh, Monaco's just around the corner. It's really a, a small, small paradise, really. Winters in Nice, though, do get a little cold, so Andrew's hostel gets busy from spring to autumn. Back in March 2020, then, he was gearing up for a new season of Backpackers and Students. 
We were looking forward to a really busy season. Uh, we had um, we had loads that we work a lot with groups, so we had a lot of group business lined up. That's school groups, university groups, sports groups coming down to. Uh, we're a big sports area. We're really, uh, really, we were set up for a good season. And then COVID happened, and we went from looking at a really busy summer to uh, all of our group business cancelling. All of the guests who'd reserved already in advance, cancelling and uh, looking at absolutely no season. Then Andrew saw an article in the local newspaper saying the government wanted to get homeless people into shelters for the duration of the lockdown and were willing to pay hotels to house them. We saw that article and saw it really as a, as a, as a lifeline, a way of of staying open and potentially doing something useful. And by the Monday, we had agreed to house 100 homeless. Uh, We had a big empty building with absolutely no idea, uh, really, of how this was going to work. And they started arriving on the Monday evening. Who was your first customer? So our first customer was this... uh, long-haired, sort of older, maybe a man in his 70s. Uh, Unusually, it was was dark when he arrived. He had one eye that looked like it was absolutely closed up, um, and I couldn't tell if he was missing an eye or if he had a black eye. But he was a real wild man. We took him up to his room, and he came down fairly, fairly quickly, and he didn't want to seem like he was complaining, but he said... He said, look, I, I, uh, I'm very happy with the room, but I'm just a bit concerned there are no windows in the room. And we obviously said, look, uh, th- th- there are windows in your room. Why don't we go up and we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll talk you through the details. Uh, As in show him the window? Show him the window. And I think he was just honestly really confused by uh, being indoors on the third floor of a big building. Um, he told us that he'd been living outside for for many years and that it was very strange to be to be indoors but also that he understood that he needed to do his bits to to help and he understood why he had to be inside during this confinement period so it was a strange moment where he was obviously a bit panicked I think and he was worried about the ventilation in the room if he'd be able to breathe he said look I I've been living you know with fresh air it's very strange to me to be inside and I really struggle without fresh air and and you can't open the windows on the third floor of a hostel, can you? You couldn't. You couldn't open the, the windows. So um, we managed to convince him that uh, that there was enough aeration in the room that he'd be comfortable, and and he looked he looked happy. But it was a it was a strange first experience of of checking someone in. Who were your other guests? So late on the first night, uh, these two uh, guys turned up who had their hoods up. Uh, one had his arm in a cast. They were young, maybe in their mid-twenties. They looked really wired. I thought, God, this these two look like trouble. Um, so I go down to uh, reception to have a chat with them. I can see them on the cameras. And so I asked him, you know, what, what had happened? And he said, oh, well, he'd, he'd crashed his scooter into a wall. And I said, oh, that doesn't sound very good. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said no, it's not very good. He said, but it's, uh, it's not the first time that I uh, 
crashed a vehicle. He said, I've just come out of prison for stealing cars. He said, but I'm over that now. I, I just like to be an Uber driver. Perfect career. Marriage of interest. And I said to him, that's good. What kind of, you know, what kind of vehicle are you hoping to drive? And he said, I'm used to just stealing really high-end cars. He said, I only steal BMWs and, and Audis. And I said, well, I guess that's what you're going to be driving as uh, an Uber driver. And he laughed and uh, and relaxed. And uh, we ended up getting along pretty well, actually, over the next couple of months. How did you decide who got dunked up with whom? Because uh, in the dormitory situations, you've got clashes of personalities there, haven't you? Did you have to bear that in mind? I think it was such a large volume of people who arrived on the first uh, day that uh, it was just a question of getting people into rooms. I think what amazed me, though, was just how you could have people uh, from all all different areas of life, all different cultures, different religions, who actually uh, were able to get along. And most people, I would say, just wanted to to get through lockdown and either get by or or rebuild. A bit like the world of backpacking, you can have thousands of people go through your doors and actually the ability of people to get along and make it work and share really, you know, quite confined small spaces uh, is quite extraordinary. It's, it's an extraordinary thing about backpacking and uh, and actually uh, dealing with people. I think we decided fairly early on and it was really my brother who expressed it. He said, look, we're just going to treat these guys as normal guests and look after them as best we can. I mean, I think there were two approaches to to managing uh, a bigger group like that. One is to run the place like a prison with very strict rules. And the other, which is the way we, the road we went down, which was just to do, to say, look, these guys are just like our regular guests, whether it was helping them to get a haircut, whether it was helping them to find clothes. We just decided that we would go all out. So you weren't really just providing accommodation. You were providing something closer to what a social work environment might provide. Yeah. We had a really broad group of people staying with us. We had older homeless, I think, who who often had been uh, on the street for a long time. We had a younger group of French kids who were often uh, battling with alcohol and addiction problems. Refugees who were in the system, who were working on asylum questions. Women trying to escape domestic violence. We had um, underage refugees who had a whole separate structure of, uh, of social workers uh, looking after them. Foreigners from across Europe who maybe had come to work on building sites and, and the work just wasn't there when they arrived and suddenly they were stuck in a different country. We had students who'd come to France to study and found the doors of the university shut and no one to and their help to access their grants. We had people with uh, mental health problems. We had people in and out of the hospital for various fairly serious conditions. Yeah, so fairly broad, broad range of people. I mean, you listed there people who had problems with alcohol and people with mental health problems as if they were separate categories, but obviously there's a bit of a Venn diagram, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I think chatting to one of the psychologists, um, he pointed out that 90% of people in a homeless situation are are suffering from from mental health problems, either pre-existing or or as a result of living in the streets. 
we had people who who you know told us that they were hearing voices and to tell them to drink bleach we had people who were would uh, be shouting out in the street about conspiracy theories we had people talking to themselves uh, pretty much constantly i mean you were dealing with people with serious mental health problems uh, a lot of these guys had also come out of prison and one of the things that's going to help you get through prison is uh, antidepressants Did you get the sense there was quite a lot of hard drug use going on? Uh, I think it was definitely happening. I think um, I think there was one person in particular who was was running a, a kind of crack den. Um, uh, who, when he set the fire alarm off, we went up to his room and it was a pretty chaotic scene. It was crack on the on the table. There was a really strong smell of ammonia in the room. There were needles all over the place. Um, there were three or four people sitting in there. Um, he'd obviously been smoking and when the fire alarm went off we got them out of the building we had this one particular guy who uh, they really they could not find uh, could not find uh, alternative lodging for who was a hardened heroin addict and he was a tricky case because he for days on end he would be he would be high as a kite uh, probably not wearing shoes, probably not wearing a shirt, um, sweating, um, hallucinating, and uh, going in and out of his room at all hours. And then there were other days where he was, you know, really perfectly normal. And you, there were days when you thought, well, this, you know, this is this is no life. This is absolutely hell on earth. And then other days when you you thought, actually, you know, he was out in the sun reading a book. Um, eating, eating something, eating a bit more normally. Um, so it was definitely it was the first time really that I'd seen 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 a heroin addict up close, and and uh, yeah, it was an eye opener. I mean, it was a pretty hellish life. How did your staff react to the change in customer? I mean, they've signed up to work in a kind of fun times <laughs> backpackers hostel, and now they're working in a homeless shelter. We had these really nice, very young women from the UK who had come down to the south of France to have a, a sort of party summer before going off to university. They obviously had a, a huge challenge because they had to adapt to a completely different situation. Uh, but they were absolutely amazing. I mean, they, they, you know, they were really dealing with really, really gritty work, cleaning rooms, but you know, also dealing with all the grit of, of running a, a homeless shelter. So, you know, vomit and blood and you know, people who completely lost the plot and, you know, trashed the room and, and you know, they never complained. They never, they just got on with the work and, and were absolutely stellar. There was one particular guy, Jeremy, who, he was a convicted uh, heist artist. So he'd held up, I think, five different jewelers in five different countries over a period of 15 to 20 years. He was a hardened criminal still quite young I would say around 40 spent 15 to 20 years in and out of jail not a very successful uh, stick-up artist because I think he got caught every time very broken in his own way and he went on a one-week booze trip he uh, at the end of it he I'm not sure even how myself how aware he was he slit the top of his shoulders he luckily was able to call reception and say look I've had a problem you know, I've cut my cut my arms. Um, I think I need to go to hospital. Um, but my brother walked into you know this absolute bloodbath of a room, and uh, 
And I think just the injuries are just pretty horrific. I mean, I think, uh, you know, cutting your shoulders open is, is really quite a traumatic thing to do. Anyway, he went off to hospital and uh, against medical advice, checked himself out within a couple of days and decided he wanted to come back. He tried ours and, and was back at the hostel. How do you feel when someone like that checks back in? I mean, on the one hand, you're providing shelter for them. But on the other hand, you must be thinking, oh, you know, this is more problems for us. You know, I feel less safe now. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, but I think, I think that was, you know, there were situations, we were dealing with those kind of situations every day. You know, it was a challenge during confinement. We're not there to be the police or to tell people what to do. We were, we were there to provide the housing. Inevitably, though, Andrew did find himself doing some casual policing. For example, intervening one night in a clash between Arab and African street gangs. You do think twice when bottles and knives start coming out. At the same time, you know, I'm a bit older now, I'm 40, and I'm looking at these 20-something-year-old kids who potentially could really hurt each other. And, um, you know, luckily I'm just physically... um, big enough that uh, that I can just pull two kids apart um, and uh, and generally stop a fight you know and you just you just think well you know you just can't you, I don't think anyone can really stand by and and watched you know someone club someone else with a bottle without you know without getting in there and trying to get in there at least and and slow them down and and separate them the police uh, gave us a panic button. They gave us the special button that they said, look, if anything goes really, really wrong, then you press this button and uh, we'll be there. Did you ever have cause to press the panic button? If I remember correctly, someone had just split, fallen off the, uh, the bus stop bench and split their head open. Two other guys were having a scrap in the street and a heroin addict came basically crawling down the street saying, look, I think I'm having a heart attack. And it was at that stage that someone was like, look, this is just, this is too much to deal with in front of the hostel. Hit the button. We need some help. And we hit the button and absolutely nothing happened. The button didn't work. (laughs) So it made us feel really great for for quite a while. We thought, well, well, at least we've got that as a backup. Maybe that's why the police gave it to you. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was just a psychological uh, reassurance. Exactly. Yeah. But in the end, uh, the button was defective, but they did, they did eventually replace it with a working button. And, uh, and when we did hit it a couple of times, yeah, they came really quickly. What were the other situations where you had to press the working button? So one of the most difficult situations that we handled was during Ramadan, we had a French caterer who, uh, on the whole, has been pretty, pretty professional, but absolutely failed we had meals that were clearly halal. And one evening, one of the younger guys found a bacon bit in his quiche, which was absolutely unforgivable um, and was obviously a major screw-up from the caterer who had promised these guys that the meals being served were, were halal. The guy proceeded to trash his room, uh, then went downstairs... Uh, told uh, another 20 people doing Ramadan that he'd found this bacon bit in his food and said perhaps, you know, these guys have been lying to us all along and uh, we haven't been eating halal. 
um, at which point we had a pretty angry mob uh, in front of the hostel. My brother arrived fairly quickly to try and calm the situation down and there was a, a, an hour or two of standoff in the street trying to convince these guys who were threatening to burn the place down. Literally? Literally burn the place down, uh, ransack it and burn it down, trying to convince these guys that uh, that it was a one-off, uh, that it was a ma- mistake, a terrible mistake that had been made, but uh, but it certainly hadn't been done on purpose. And after an hour or two, he was, my brother was able to calm them down enough that things got back to some kind of normal. How do you stay, like, rational and reasonable in that situation when it's so amplified by the, the, the amount of people that are saying it? I think the fact that we, we did build up a rapport with people, that they weren't just number, they were someone we'd actually chatted to. There's someone we'd, you know, we'd helped... I think all of those things, when you're in a, a really angry situation like that and a situation which threatens to get really out of control, actually the thing holding it together is that you, you know, you do have some kind of personal relationship and and that was the thing that allowed my brother ultimately to defuse the situation. Obviously we read a lot about the tensions between the Muslim community in France and the French in general. I wonder if having that experience in your hostel brought that to life for you in a way that maybe wouldn't happen when you're hosting tourists? Yeah, I would say Nice has a uh, fairly strong far-right vote. And I think Muslims in the south of France, particularly because of the politics, do have a tough time and, and, and often don't get treated fairly. Did the caterer understand the gravity of their mistake? So our French caterer, although he's been pretty professional... I don't think understands really what a vegetarian is um, and certainly didn't seem to be taking halal food nearly seriously enough and really understand what, what that meant. Even when we confronted him with it and said, look, you know, you realise that um, there is nothing you could do that would be more insulting and less forgivable. It was only when we said, look, next time, We'll just send them to your business and you can deal with diffusing the situation. <laughs> then he seemed to register a little more the situation. Also a little slow to realise what was going on were some of Andy's more conventional customers. We had a one American backpacker who showed up from God knows where. I don't know what he was doing in Nice, but he landed at the hostel and didn't seem to be particularly aware that, you know, of confinement, and was walked into this uh, fairly chaotic scene with a hundred homeless people uh, in the building, and his attitude seemed to be, "What's going on here? Where's the pub crawl?" He seemed uh, he seemed pretty unfazed by uh, confinement and what was going on around him. Probably one of the hardest things that I I saw was just the the people struggling with mental health issues. I think that was tough because um, really there was there was no they needed they needed help and medical treatment and medical care, but they just weren't able to follow the schedule or they didn't want the help. Um, and there's nothing you can do or say. You know they have to choose help for themselves, but 
but often they're not able to do that and uh, and really understand. I think I think really one of the issues is they don't really understand what's what's happening or happened to them. And uh, I think that was the group of people in a way that was hardest to uh, hardest to watch because um, they really had so little choice and were living very hard lives. And um, in a way, uh, there was no way out. We had people who were, had led really quite successful uh, professional lives who had ended up homeless. We had a policeman staying with us who had had a really successful police career and uh, was diagnosed, I guess, in his mid to late 20s with uh, bipolar disorder. And I mean, there was a guy who had uh, worked like a career in oil platforms um, around the world he'd earned really good money, but living on these oil platforms under pressure with not a lot to do apart from, from, from drink, I think had developed an alcohol problem. We had a guy with really bad, he'd run a construction company who just had chronic back problems. He could barely get out of bed. And somehow, you know, I guess he just hadn't, didn't have family to fall back on. He just, uh, he'd ended up, you know, he ended up in the homeless shelter basically, um, more or less unable to move. We had a maitre d' of one of the big Cannes hotels who had fallen into a depression within a few months, and you know went from having a you know a great career in in the hotel business, uh, you know fell into depression, couldn't get himself out of bed for a few months, and you know some some one day a bailiff turns up and says. You know, basically, you're out of the apartment, and you know we're taking your, repossessing your furniture, and he was on the street. Did he have views about how you should be running your hostel? Uh, the maitre d, yeah, he was very big on the food. I would, we, I'd check in with him pretty much every day <laughs> to see uh, what he thought about the food, giving me like saying, look, you know, the pasta needs more salt. The sauce wasn't very good last night, so on, and I'd be passing that feedback back to the caterer. And, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. As Andrew got to know his clientele, themes of mental health problems and alcohol abuse manifested time and again. But also, more often than he'd anticipated, a large number of his customers seemed to have violent traumas in their past. There was one guy who stuck in my mind who told me his story. He was running a chain of uh, bakeries in Corsica. And Corsica is well known for having mafia problems. And apparently he'd refused to pay off the mafia uh, for running these bakeries. And they had waited a couple of years before taking any action. And one day he was in the car with his father and his father was shot in the car in front of him. And after that happened, he was no longer able to run the bakeries. The bakeries got sold. He told me that he'd suffered from uh, serious mental health problems. He still had episodes where he would have a sort of panic attack and end up on the floor. And he was being he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, um, trying to deal with this experience. So it did strike me that often talking to these guys that there was some kind of violent story somewhere in the in the background that uh, was obviously a contributing factor to to their situation. Did you have anyone from England who'd ended up in the south of France? So we did. 
one of the most difficult episodes actually was this guy who arrived more or less on his, uh, you know, really very, very sick. He was dropped off by the Red Cross. He could barely stand. He couldn't actually stand. We had to go and get him a chair when he arrived. He was on crutches and he was more or less bent over double on this chair. And we said, look, we just, we, we're just not equipped to deal with someone like this. You know, we, you really can't, you can't leave him here. And the Red Cross said, look, there's absolutely nowhere else for him to go. Um, the hospitals are closed to everyone uh, unless it's a, someone's had a heart attack or a stroke. Basically, no one, no, no one is entering the hospital or preparing for COVID. And there is nowhere. This guy was just absolutely... Uh, just just couldn't even stand up. There was nowhere for him to go. So he, so we reluctantly agreed to take him. And uh, we, he couldn't even walk to his room. We had to take an arm each. And he was grossly underweight. He was a tall guy, just light as a feather. So we, we took an arm. My brother and I took him an arm each. And we got him in the lift. And we're on the lift up. And he, you know, he's slurring his words. And he says, uh, where are you from? And, and we say, oh, we're from England. And he says, uh, you just about make out. He says, oh, I'm from England too. He says, I'm from Luton. He says, I'm from Luton. And I don't know what journey took him from Luton to, to you know, basically this homeless shelter that really on his last legs. But he picked up, he picked up uh, for a day or two. He was eating. He said, look, I've got this unbelievable appetite. I really need to put on some weight. So we had him, we had him down in the bar and chatting with with the team and and uh, generally just getting a bit of fresh air and and getting get, trying to get some food down in and uh we did find out a bit about his story it was a uh, he was his father had been a translator for the american army in iraq and had been killed for uh, being seen as a collaborator and this guy had been moved moved from iraq with his family after his father had been killed to France where he'd grown up and probably 32, something like that, 33, um, had lost all of his toes to, to diabetes, had chronic pancreatitis, was just a chronic alcoholic and was kind of on his way out. And unfortunately he did pass away within a couple of days of, of staying with us. So, so I did- In your hostel? In the hostel, yeah, in the hostel. But you'd said when he arrived that you didn't think it was the right place for him to be, that he should be in some kind of medical facility. So how did you feel about that afterwards, bearing in mind he did die? I mean, did you feel any guilt? Did you think I should have pushed harder? I think according to the doctor, who was there was a doctor coming in to see him uh, every day for the last two days of his life. And the doctor said it was pretty clear that he was he was on his way out. I mean, his his body was just failing and uh, the family were pretty clear as well. I think the, he, his family turned up um, who were local to, to, to Nice, part English, part French. They said, look, we just couldn't cope with them anymore. I think, I think they just got to the stage where uh, as often when you're dealing with someone who's just, who's just absolutely, uh, who's lost to uh, alcohol or drugs, I think, uh, you know, it, it makes the family really quite, quite ill as well. And they just said, look, you know, we've, we've got so much guilt that we couldn't look after him at the end. But we just weren't able to cope with him at home. And, and so we, we had to call the Red Cross, basically, to find him alternative accommodation. I guess, I mean, it shouldn't be more tragic that a 32-year-old passes away in a homeless shelter than that a 70-year-old might. But I, su I suppose... It might have been more expected. 
especially during COVID, that an older person might die in your care. But for someone to be so young, that's the shocker, isn't it? Yeah, it was pretty shocking. It was pretty shocking that you could hurt yourself so much. I'm guessing, though, that there must have been examples where it's ended positively for people. Um, So in contrast to that experience, people that have come to stay with you who have been sleeping on the street for months, who actually for the first time are getting three meals a day and, you know, staying in a, a warm room and all the rest of it, that are better now. Definitely. I think living on the street is just so just so physically hard and really as far as I can tell talking to these guys you know it it, it just takes out your ability to deal with with anything you know your your ability to to function is just you know dramatically reduced and we did have a couple a few people you know tell us that quite clearly um I think where we were a little bit different one of the issues that I'm still thinking through and grappling with is that we were obviously allowing alcohol in the building. And I think one of the issues that I can see is that most shelters, there is, there are actually, you know, perfectly, there are really decent shelters in Nice. The problem is that you can't tell an alcoholic to stop drinking at five o'clock when they're expected to be inside in the shelter. You know, they just won't go inside because basically it means that they have to stop drinking at a certain time and they would rather be on the street than actually in a shelter and with us because it was a short-term thing and because um regardless these guys had to be off the streets you know for a short period of time i think some of these guys who who would never consider going into a shelter did actually stay with us and yeah of course it did some good and and it gave them a you know respite from from the street i would say it's changed my own my own relationship with alcohol i think having watched these guys and up close and seeing what it does, I've actually just pretty much stopped drinking. So I would say one thing that, that's come out of this whole experience is, is uh, I'm off the booze. And there's something that you said in the email that you sent me. People can make it back from the most dire circumstances, even when you think they're too far gone. It's possible to remake your life. Yeah, I think for my limited experience of uh, taking people to to uh, a meetings you see people who've been badly physically affected by by alcohol really quite damaged speech a bit slurred jerky movements who are completely lucid completely able to function normally um and do make it back from the absolute bottom you know i met people who were sometimes you know sober for 15 or 20 years you know and and uh but still you can see the the effects you can see the the effects that alcohol have, alcohol's left on them um but i think it's absolutely i don't think uh you know you ever should give up on people completely because clearly um even from the absolute rock bottom you can pick yourself up and make the choice to to rebuild has it made you a better hotelier i think um it's showed us you know that we can do something very different um and i definitely think We'd like to somehow find a way to keep working with the homeless because uh, I think actually, you know, we did genuinely have a good connection with with uh, a lot of the people that we met. We made friends and it was very rewarding. I mean, obviously it was a, I mean, you're seeing all sorts of people with all sorts of problems, basically uh, on the whole, trying to make get by, trying to live with a little dignity and generally 
you know, like everyone, just just trying to do their their bit and do their best. I think it's definitely an area we'd like to keep to keep working in in some shape or form. Andrew's story. And if you have an experience you'd like to share with us about the challenges modern life has thrown at you, please do drop us a line. All our contact details are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And one of the advantages of recording everything remotely at the moment is we can speak to man fans from all over the world. So do reach out wherever you are. Uh, Up next, Alex Fox with something completely different, After Sex Reflexes. We'll be discussing that after this. It's time to talk sex with Alex Fox. It's the Foxhole Happy New Year, Alex. Happy New Year, Ollie. And I have to say mine is happy. I'm determined to make this year good despite the odds. Well, and I understand, I mean, we've already heard Ollie Pitt in his garden this episode. I understand you have positive and exciting news about something else he should experiment with outdoors. I bring you the uh, the very important information that whatshed.co.uk... How am I not on their press release list? <laughs> Why am I? How the hell did I get this press release? <laughs> How does podcasting work? <laughs> anyway, on with the show. Whatshed.co.uk have ponied up one and a half grand each for three couples who they want to send a variety of supposedly aphrodisiac seeds to plant in their back garden, <laughs> tend to, eat, and then see how they affect them in the bedroom. Um, one the and seeds... a half grand's worth of seeds? Oh, no, no. You get one and a half thousand pounds for doing oh, the trial. Oh, it's a competition. <laughs> Right. One and a half thousand pounds worth of seeds. You'd need a plough, wouldn't you? <laughs> You'd need a significant amount of space, I imagine. Um, they're sending chilies, which I have heard of as an aphrodisiac. They raise your general body temperature and apparently your your libido too. But they're also but sending wash your hands this- afterwards. Seriously. <laughs> Yeah, true. Well, if you don't want to sting her on the old ringer. But they're also <laughs> sending asparagus and lavender, uh, neither of which I've heard of as um, helping to heat no. things up between the sheets. Lavender just reminds me of um, old people's homes. Uh, anyway, it is time for your questions of sex. Um, if you have one, you can send it in by visiting our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and clicking on the feedback form. Uh, and this one, the first of the year, Alex comes from an anonymous lady who says, I'd like to know a bit about after-sex reflexes. After I have sex, I always cough to the point where I feel like I'm going to be sick. Here we are, back on the Vauxhall. Uh, I only have this problem uh, during penetrative vaginal sex, not anal sex, not masturbation, or when I use sex toys. We don't use condoms, so I have a suspicion that it could be my body trying to get my boyfriend's sperm out. Any help Alex can offer on this would be great, as it definitely kills the mood when I'm nearly being sick after sex. Okay. (laughs) So we have a listener who wants a post-fuck cough to fuck off. Um, She hasn't given us a name, has she, Ollie? She hasn't, no. Uh, Can we call her Cough Drop? for for the entirety of this conversation you can do whatever you want i mean i'm normally the host but i think we all know this is this is your domain alex (laughs) okay let's work through some of the possible causes and see if we can work out what's going on here via a process of elimination or equimination if you will equimination it's the new challenge tv sensation (laughs) (laughs) what's the prize equimination (laughs) 
Let's uh, examine the possibility that semen could be the culprit here. Is it her boyfriend's little swimmers that are making her cough? Because mm-hmm. um, as we've as we've covered, semen does get forced out of the body uh, if you cough after sex. In fact, a lot of women and indeed men uh, will have experienced the uh, rather unpleasant sensation of uh, their partner's spooge being shot as if from a cannon at. at considerable force from their orifices post-sex. It can sometimes take you by surprise, this, actually, Um, to the point where... <laughs> a company um, formerly called Come and Gone, now renamed Awkward Essentials, actually patented a product called the Drip Stick, which was designed to stop this um, uncomfortable expulsion of spunk happening. It's essentially like a, a it's a medical grade sponge on a stick, on a, on like a dipstick that you're supposed to put up inside wow. your vagina, like a bottle stop. But, yeah. well, <laughs> Well, it's designed to to soak up semen uh, and then be removed so that you don't have that uncomfortable um, experience of uh, seminal fluid either leaking out or, in the case of a cough, suddenly being expelled uh, when you least want it to want it to. Uh, after you've gotten jiggy, there's some new research that suggests that. Um, semen can actually be held within the body a lot longer than we previously thought. And there are kind of channels um, up higher inside of the womb that can cling onto it for days. Um, I wonder how much uh, a medical grade sponge could actually remove. It's interesting. Um, Although this isn't the kind of experiment um, intriguing as it may be that I could imagine would be particularly particularly a turn on for my partner. Um, What Cough Drop is asking here though is, is her body trying to flush this semen out on purpose? Mm. Um, If it was an allergy, I would more expect her vulval area and her vaginal area to feel hot and itchy. There might be some swelling. Um, A cough would be a secondary symptom, usually, of this type of allergy. The only potential exception to that could be if there is oral sex going on before yes. there's penetrative vaginal. I wonder if giving him a blowjob might be part of their usual routine. That actually could be a fun experiment to do, couldn't it? Give him a blowjob, see if you have the same reaction or not. Well, another experiment they can do, it's a very simple one uh, to eliminate the role of the potential role of semen here, is wear a condom. Stick mm. a Johnny on if you're hacking up like bob fleming afterwards then it's probably not semen that's the case bob fleming that's not a reference you hear these days i feel like the coronavirus has killed all fun references to bob fleming so thank you for reintroducing him to the show and for anyone under 30 like go to youtube you'll have a good time if cough drop is still coughing after sex with a condom then that would suggest that semen perhaps isn't the problem here and if they've avoided blowjobs too okay so what else could it be well the second suggestion i'm going to make is that it could be connected to the vagus nerve which is something that we discussed in the summer actually um the vagus nerve is a bit like the magic faraway tree of nerves it's massive it's spindly and it's got roots and shoots that travel quite a long way throughout the body and it has a creature called moon face living on the top branch <laughs> fucking hope not <laughs> this nerve um, it, it travels all the way from the pelvic pelvic region up through the thorax and the chest and into the head and it is involved with things like heart rate and to some extent breathing um, if during vaginal sex 
Cough Drop's partner is bashing against her cervix or overstimulating that area with his penis, Mm. then it could trigger what's called a vasovagal attack. Again, we have spoken about this before. Um, This can cause symptoms where you feel a bit woozy and nauseous. So that could account for the, the, the coughing until she feels sick. She might actually feel a bit sick first and then her body coughs as a response to that. It can also cause your blood pressure to drop and just generally makes you feel pretty unpleasant. Okay, so the solution for that presumably would be shallower penetration. Yes, shallower penetration, um, changing positions could help. In fact, I would recommend experimenting with different positions full stop because another possibility here is if they're having sex in missionary position or or anything where her partner's weight tends to land more on her chest, Mm. that could also be causing the coughing. If there's repeated thumping against the lungs, um, then that may, again, be causing what I'm now going to call the Fleming effect. But if it's neither of those things, what can it be? Well, there's also a possibility called silent reflux, which sounds quite a lot like a gritty BBC drama, doesn't it? Really? To me, it just sounds like a mattress for old people. (laughs) Yeah, that too. Um, God, I haven't spoken to anybody all week, Ollie. (laughs) (laughs) And now this, silent reflux. Okay, this is a condition in which stomach acid travels back up the throat. It causes a general discomfort. It can feel like a a kind of tingling, burning, heartburny sort of sensation. It can give you a bitter taste in your throat, but it can also cause a chronic cough or excessive throat clearing. So if the problem here is that stomach acid is getting tipped back and kind of travelling back up her throat during vaginal sex because of the position and the movement that's going on there, then that could be the problem. Um, Treatment for silent reflux um, more generally involves all sorts of things. Um, Having a blander diet, avoiding spicy foods, um, avoiding alcohol, But one of the main tips that specialists give here is also raising your head or the the head end of your bed before sleeping. So if cough drop is having sex in a position that tends to tilt her backwards or if she's used to lying down with a pillow under her head, but that is removed. Go get yourself an adjust-o-matic. Yes, It is a mattress for old people. That is the solution. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. There might be some other uh, changes that she needs to make to her bed as well. I spoke to a breathing expert called Jane Tarrant and she told me that you breathe in two different ways when you're having sex, or you tend to. The first is that your breathing intensifies, so you're breathing more heavily and faster. And secondly, that your breathing tends to be unfiltered. Rather than breathing through your nose, so things like pet hair or dust mites or other allergens can be caught in those little hairs in your nasal passages, you tend to pant through your mouth. So if cough drop actually does have an existing allergy to something else in the bedroom, um, like dust, like something on her bed sheets, something in the air, then because she's potentially taking more of that in through her through her um, her airways mm. during vigorous vaginal sex then that Mm. could be stimulating the coughing i did ask jane well okay well how come it's not happening during anal sex then and we chatted about it and decided well maybe cough drop and her partner are going more slowly during anal sex being more careful could be positioning as well couldn't it exactly it could be positioning maybe a feather duster is used as a toy during (laughs) during missionary 
Yeah, she didn't tell us whether she was using a tickle stick or not. It could be a feather <laughs> allergy. Um, either it's way... It's a good point, though, isn't it? Get, get a clean stick for your fetish needs. Don't use your household devices. Yes, even the most gothic inclined amongst us don't want cobwebs on our cracks. So, because cough drop might be um, not exerting herself as much during anal sex or might be more sedentary during masturbation, that potential uh, increase of uh, allergens might not be happening apart from in vaginal sex. Ditto plain old exertion she might just be getting more worn out during mm. the slammer lama ding dong in v rather than in any other case a test case for that could just be try it in a different room couldn't it yep change location deep clean your bed linen uh leave a window open perhaps to let some fresh air in very topical yeah, yeah. exactly ventilation always good <laughs> yeah. um uh, whether it's it If the problem is due to one of these factors, an existing external allergen, uh, exertion, or maybe um, a a problem connected to a low level of something like asthma that's being kicked off during sex, um, then looking at positioning, looking at um, slowing things down, but also looking at breathing exercises can be very helpful. Jane teaches three different types of breathing, which she calls coffee, water and whiskey. Coffee is like faster breathing to stimulate you. Water is uh, everyday flow to help you focus. And whiskey breathing is designed to chill you out like a little tipple by the fireside in the evening. Learning how to whiskey breathe before drawing and after sex could help cough drop that will also help if there is a psychological loop that's been set up where she's anxious about vaginal sex because she's expecting it to make her cough and expecting it to make her feel sick therefore she's tightening up including tightening her chest and actually that coughing is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy because of worry breathing exercises will help her chill out help remove that worry and anxiety and thus reduce the chance of coughing eye-opening stuff as ever cough drop let us know if any of those solutions work for you it's feedback that i would very much enjoy reading out in the intro one day (laughs) and uh, if you have a question of sex for alex fox what do you need to do with it you need to go to our website modern man yes it's still got two ends 2021 hasn't robbed us of any of our consonants yet dot co dot uk and hit feedback And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint our New Year Manbassador. It is Mike from Kingshill in Kent, who says, Ollie, my wife and fellow man fan Jen and I have been listening to your show since the day it launched. I have fond memories of once leaving the station car park, exchanging pleasantries with the lovely bloke that runs it, and flicking on my car stereo, only to be greeted by Alex, advising plenty of lube. He laughed, I drove away. We have never mentioned it since. Uh, well, here is something that you can shout from the rooftops, Mike. I now pronounce you Manbassador for Kings Hill. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be a Manbassador, buy us a beer and drop us a line. All links are on our website. Uh, meantime, our theme music has been by Django Django. The producer has been Matt Hill. I've been Ollie Mann. And we'll see you with something new on February the 10th.
So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.